Okay. Sounds like there's a party going on out there or something. Fellowship. Okay, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to resume our time in protology and just see a lot of new faces in here. So I'll do a little bit of board work here just to kind of catch us up to speed. Okay, we're studying on biblical theology. We're studying um, the idea of protology, which is the study of the first things, right? The first things, kind of like eschatology. Uh, is the study of last things. So protos, protology, is the study of first things. And we've been looking at uh, things like, uh, well, protology is really, you're looking at Genesis, right? Chapters 1 through 3 is what really traditionally, historically, has been deemed the protological uh, part of the Bible, uh, that early primal uh, history of revelation and so we've been looking at different things we've looked at the days of creation we've looked at um things like the image of god we've looked at the garden we've looked at a lot of different things and all the themes and the ideas that are involved so now uh we're looking at uh the fall that's what we've been talking about and what's next is after the fall we're going to look at the promise, uh, and that's the way we're going to call it, okay? But in looking at the fall, we've been talking about the emergence of what theologians have called the anti-lord. And who is the anti-lord? Well, the anti-lord is the serpent, okay? And just let me know if I've spelled something so horribly wrong that you can't read it, okay? Um, so, and, and, and why is he called the anti-lord versus just simply the serpent, what are, the, what are the reasons why we called him not just the devil, not just Satan, but actually anti-Lord? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Why we were careful to def- to use that terminology? Anyone? Anyone? Go ahead, Brad. So his, his purpose is to oppose everything that's of God. Mm-hmm. That's right. And by the time he comes into the picture, right, which is in Genesis chapter 3, already, what is the word for Lord? That is used in the Bible. Do you remember? What's that? Right. So what's the word that's used? No longer just Elohim from chapter one. It's what? It's Yahweh. Right. It's Yahweh. So so Yahweh is characteristic of God's covenant name. And so that's kind of what you find throughout the Old Testament is that when Scripture uses Yahweh, it's usually in covenantal contexts. So the fact that Yahweh has already been introduced into the stream of protology, what I'm saying is that if you were a, if you were a Jew after the Exodus and you read the, the, the law, you would have already gotten acquainted with Yahweh, right, as the covenant uh, uh, the covenant redeemer who redeemed his people out of the house of bondage with a strong arm. And so now you're going to find Yahweh all the way back in the early protology of the Bible. And what you're understanding is here is the covenant God setting up a covenantal worldview for his people from day one. And so what is the anti-Lord doing? He is opposing the covenant Lord. And we even went so far as to say, that what he has done is that he has asserted asserted himself as the covenant Lord, right? And so when we come to uh, Genesis chapter 3, that's exactly what we find. So um, let me just go back to, um, 
let me go back to what I called the fall of man and the deception uh, or the depths of the satanic deception. Because remember, if you just follow what's going on here in verses 1 through 7, what Satan is doing is literally inverting or reversing everything that the covenant God made. If you go back to chapter 2, Verse 15, just look there quickly with me. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him, put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man. So there is a uh, command, there is the law of God saying, From any, of the, any tree of the garden you may freely eat or eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Uh, one of the clearest evidences that, and, and this is what historically, verses 15 through 17, what historically has been called by theologians as the covenant of, help me, the covenant of works, right? And why is it the covenant of works? Because it is an initial uh, call by Yahweh, by God, to to humanity that if they were were to obey then they would seemingly have the right to eat of the tree of life and then live forever, as is indicated by the end, when you get to the end of chapter 3 in Genesis. Um, remember, he says he says that he has to drive them out of the garden lest they take of the tree of life and live forever. You see that? That's in verse 22. So it's almost as if uh, man is in a probationary period of time under the covenant of works. Had he obeyed perfectly, had the man and the woman obeyed perfectly, then they would have merited, they would have earned the right or the authority to the tree of life. You see? And then after taking of the tree of life, what we're saying is that ultimately they would have received that, that, that righteousness that they needed to be confirmed in a righteous standing with God, right? But of course they fell and they did not obey the covenant of works and therefore the covenant of works becomes the occasion and then the fall becomes the occasion for a new covenant which is known as the covenant of grace. That's right. And fair enough, some theologians don't like this language uh, especially if you're coming from more of a dispensational background, they would say, well, it's not appropriate to l- use the language of a covenant because um, that's not found in the text, right? Um, the, the Hebrew word for covenant is berit. Um, and in the, in, in the Septuagint, it's um, diatheke. But neither in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, right? Or in the Hebrew, neither uh, of those terms appear. But what you have is basically the components of the covenant that are present there. So if you don't want to use the word covenant, I understand a lot of great theologians did not like to use that term. Uh, I can think of John Murray, for example, instead of covenant, calling it a covenant with Adam, a covenant of works or grace, he liked to speak of it as an Adamic administration. Okay, well, I got, you know, news flash for John Murray. The word administration is not in the text either. <laughs> so, so you can, you can use whatever word you want to use. I like to use the biblical word, right? Which, uh, how many times does the word covenant appear in the Old Testament? Does anybody know? Just off the top of your heads, that's something you would know Sunday at uh, 1.45 in the afternoon, right? Hundreds. So you're looking, I think it's like over 300 times the word covenant appears in the Old Testament. So you think the Lord wants us to think covenantally? I, I think so, right? And I think that, that God, God also thinks or works covenantally. That's the way he operates, right? Uh, and then very early on in the book of Genesis, 
you have a reference to a covenant. And so I ask the question, well, where did the idea of a covenant come from then? Uh, is the Bible borrowing from pagan ancient Near Eastern society, civilization, and borrowing the concept of a berit or a covenant and then using it for its own biblical means? Absolutely not. I think it's the complete opposite, right? Uh, human civilization understood what covenant uh, arrangements were because it was something that God revealed, right? And that's where they got the idea. It's not the opposite. It's not God following in the path of humans, it's humans following in the path of God. Okay, so anyway, so, um, <clears throat> but we we have the fall, we have a reversal, and look at verse three, just to see how potent this anti-Lord uh, deception really is. In verse three, look at he uses the exact same utilization, uh, the same words that 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 God uses. He says. Um, um, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the trees which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it, touch it, or you will die. That's not what I'm looking for. Um, verse 4, then the, woman, the, then the serpent said to the woman, here we go, you shall surely not die, for watch this, for God knows, and then this phrase, in the day. You see that? In the day, which is exactly what God said back in chapter 2, verse 17, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, the anti-Lord is saying, in the day that you eat of it, guess what? Not only will you not die, you will actually ascend to Godhood. You will be like God. That's what I'm talking about, the depths of satanic deception that are going on here. Now, um, I don't want to spend too much time on that because we already looked at that. So now... What I want to do is I want to look at the fall, okay, and kind of controversial here, day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? What is the day of the Lord in the Bible? Anyone take a stab at it? Yes, sir. Okay, second coming. Judgment, right? Uh, now, if you're talking about in the Old Testament, right, the day of the Lord is not explicitly uh, necessarily connected to the second coming, but it is, as, the, as they said, connected to the concept of judgment, right? It is the terrible day of the Lord that is coming. So I think this is important because I think this is what's happening in the fall. So what do we mean by the fall and the day of the Lord? Read Genesis 3, 8 with me again. It says here, and, and this is, you know, uh, this is where we're going to depart with some of the traditional readings of a couple of texts, and I, I'll try to work that out with you. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, let's be honest, and we talked about this briefly a few weeks ago, but when we think of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, what's the imagery that comes to your mind? In the cool of the day. Peace. Peace. Anybody else? Rest. Rest. That's right. Yeah. I mean, don't you want to go take a stroll in the garden in the cool of the day, right? It sounds... It's a walk on the beach. It's a stroll in the park. You know what I mean? It's it's just like a paradisical, you know, yeah, the Lord is just enjoying his creation, walking around. But see, here's the problem with that. There's a problem with this this translation 
in the cool of the day for many, 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 many reasons. There's a problem with this traditional way of interpreting uh, this verse. Number one, it almost kind of paints a picture of God, the omniscient God that knows everything, right? Uh, you know, uh, does God know that man fell by this point? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not like the Lord is, <laughs> hey, what happened to you guys? You know, <laughs> right? That's kind of the image you get though, right? God's just walking in the cool of the day and then he inquires almost taking knowledge impassively. Hey, where are you guys? You know, like, like he doesn't know. Well, of course he knows. So what's the deal? And Landon brought this up when we talked about the cool of the day. And how did you describe it, Landon? Um, your understanding of the, that phrase, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, the word cool in the Hebrew literally means wind. Mm-hmm. Right. What the the idea you get is in in this day isn't a day of the Is it just wind? Well, it literally means wind, but since God is coming and they're hiding, they're fearing a a, a mighty wind, a very judge. I would say it's like a, a judgmental storm of the presence of God. Okay, so how else does that word translate though? Is it just wind? Wind or spirit or breath? But yeah, That's right. Yeah. Now, have we seen ruach? That's the Hebrew word for wind or spirit. Have we seen the ruach of God in in Genesis so far? We're only in chapter three, right? But have we seen this word already? Where? Genesis chapter one, verse two. The earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the ruach, same word, the ruach of Elohim was moving over the surface of the waters. Interesting. So, so, so interesting. Um, I, I don't have time to get into this here, but some some uh, biblical theologians have made a an argument that what the Spirit of God is doing there is not just hovering. So we think of more like the Spirit is hovering in some locale, right? Like there's the waters and here's the Spirit hovering somewhere. Uh, in a localized region of the world, right? Where some are saying, no, that actually, this is actually also typological uh, later. And typological just means it's a type. It symbolizes something that is has a greater fulfillment later on of the Spirit essentially being a canopy over the people of God. Uh, and so what what is the Spirit doing here is, as He's hovering over creation, He's literally the the, the glory presence of God as a canopy, a presence over all of creation. Again, I don't have time to get into all that, but um, I just think it's interesting, and there is evidence of it in the prophets that the Spirit will become a canopy over Zion and things like that. It's just really interesting. Um, but so, so that's right. So, so if 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 this context here in Genesis chapter three is speaking about God taking a leisurely stroll through the garden, then the remainder of the text is just kind of hard to really uh, fit in contextually, right? So if he's just taking a leisurely stroll, it says here, the man and the wife hid themselves. And, and you might say, well, they hid themselves because they had sinned and they were naked. Remember, that's what it goes on to say. Yeah, but look at the immediate text. They hid themselves from what? From the presence of the panim of the Lord, his face, his presence of God among the trees of the garden. And so whatever this, whatever this presence, this coming, this 
walking in the garden in the cool of the day, whatever it was, it was enough to instill fear. It was enough to instill fear. So I believe along with, it's not my, my view, I didn't make this up, but um, in reading Meredith Klein, this is what he says. He says, this is a kind of fearful advent of the Lord. Let me, let me read Klein a little bit more in depth here, okay? This is what he says. He says, in Genesis 3, 8, this is the original day of the Lord. Thus, day of the Lord, right? He says, this is the original day of the Lord, which served as a prototypical mold, which subsequent pictures of other days of the Lord were cast. Such a day is one of divine epiphany. That's when God appears and mainly appears in such a way that it's, um, it's fearful, it, 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 it infuses fear into people, right? It says, the, the final such day is preeminently the day of our Lord's parousia. What's the parousia? Coming. That's the second coming. So what he's saying is that the ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord theology is the second coming, right? Uh, and that, we'll see evidence of that. The day of his presence as the personal revelation of the glory with the clouds and angels of heaven. Now, does that start, does that remind you of any passages or texts of scripture when it talks about the day of the Lord, his coming, his presence in clouds with angels, right? I know we're thinking someone like Thessalonians somewhere, right? <laughs> so actually there's a ton of texts. There's Matthew where Jesus himself says he will come in glory and power in the clouds in great power, right? And referring to a second coming. Um, yes, ma'am. That is, that is, yeah. And that's right. You're still in my thunder a little bit, but yes. Because <laughs> I, I actually have that right here. It says, if this is a prototypical day of the Lord, then we can see the fullness of this in the return of Christ. G.K. Beale, for example, sees a connection between Genesis 3.8 and the second coming of Christ connected to Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 7, where the inhabitants of the earth hide themselves from the epiphany of the glory of God and the Lamb. Right? And just as the trees of the garden are given for God's glory to display, to be displayed and enjoyed, mankind will seek to hide themselves in the mountains and rocks from God's glorious presence. The earth was created to display God's glory, and now it is used in an attempt to hide from His glory. Um, so, yeah, I think there, there there probably is a connection there. Um, now, now, listen to this language here. Back to Meredith Klein's quote. He says, "Trumpeting the advent of the divine presence at Sinai, Pentecost, and the Parousia of Jesus, at every day of the Lord, is the fearful sound." of the voice of the Lord. Listen to this now, because if you spend any time, Trish, uh, what was I reading last night at, we won't tell them what hour it was. What what was I reading last night where you were, you know, uh, in a peaceful sleep? I told you, don't tell them what time it is. My goodness. I couldn't get out of Ezekiel because... <laughs> I was back in Ezekiel 1. What I was doing as my wife was sleeping so peacefully next to me is, yeah, I was reading Ezekiel and just seeing all of the, all of the remarkable imagery of, of the chariot language of Ezekiel 
and of the presence of God and of the parousia and all of that put together. And I thought, what did I tell you on the way to church, Trish? I said, if you want to, if you want to go through seminary, study Ezekiel. Master Ezekiel. Get four or five commentaries on Ezekiel. It's the hardest book, one of the hardest books you'll ever interpret in the whole Bible. But if you really want to just, you know, I heard a, 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 a pastor once say, um, if you want to build character, start, start with the hard things first in your life. Everybody opts for the easy stuff first, right? So start with the hard things. And I thought, you know what? How great. That's so true. Start with Ezekiel. <laughs> That's a hard challenge, right? But really what you see in Ezekiel is God coming in his storm chariot and his presence. And Ezekiel is whisked away to see this. And you see the cherubim and the angels and the wheels and the eyes, which the, 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 the multiplicity of the eyes are a symbol of God's omniscience and, and all of this. And the cherubim are a symbol of God's warrior status. Right. And the fact that he's on a chariot, it's just a picture of God coming in clouds and thunder and lightning. And it's just amazing. Right. And all of that language transfer that all over to the second coming of Christ, because really that's where we see the fullness of it. You know, I think we forget sometimes that we'll read the coming. The second coming of Christ is. uh, How can we even begin to really wrap our minds around how terrible that day will be, how great it will be for us? but how terrible it will be for the wicked, right? It would be so fearful, as we read. People would rather have a mountain fall on them than to have to face the presence of the parousia of Jesus Christ. It's just amazing, right? Yeah, Psalm, Psalm 1 said something like that, that the wicked will be blown away like chaff. Like chaff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just finish this. It says, Meredith Klein says, It is the fearful sound of the voice of the Lord, the thunderclap, of the approaching theophanic storm chariot. And I thought, okay, where does he get this language, this storm chariot, you know? I, I've studied the Bible for a long time. I don't remember nothing about no storm chariot, right? And then he goes on to show in Ezekiel over and over how you see the presence of the chariot. Also in the Psalms where he says, says he rides on the wings of the wind, right? Um, uh, okay, he says, it was precisely this arresting signal that the primal parousia was heralded. What is he saying there? It is exactly that sound of the Lord. Now back to uh, Genesis 3.8. Notice what it says here. They heard the what? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now, another important Hebrew word here is this word. Kol. Kol. Which means what? Sound or voice when you when you have various um various uh, uh day of the lord passages in the bible and when you have the epiphany of god when you have a a manifestation of the glory of god the glory cloud of god whatever you want to call it what you have is a is a utilization of this word kol uh the noise or the sound or the voice of god coming right amazing genesis chapter 3 verse 8 uses this word and this word is operative all throughout the Old Testament. For example, um, why don't we do some reading, okay? Uh, who will read uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5, verse 22? Who wants to read that? Okay, Lynn, Deuteronomy 5, 22. Who's going to read Deuteronomy 4, 11 to 12? Who's that? Robert, you got that? 
uh, Deuteronomy 4, 11 to 12, and then Landon, I heard you, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 16. Okay. So let's go, let's uh, start with our brother Lynn here, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. With a great voice, and what's what Hebrew word is that? Kol. That's right. It is the sound or the great voice of God. Okay, next one, Deuteronomy 4. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. Boy, these guys read nice and loud, don't they? Now, interesting interchange. Look at verse 12. You heard the sound, kol, same word, but you saw no form, only a voice, kol, same Hebrew word. You see the interchangeability of this Hebrew word can be either sound or voice, and it's almost always attached to these sort of theophanies or these epiphanies, right, of the Lord. Which last one, Deuteronomy 18. 15, 15 through 16. The Lord, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to them. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in, in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, lest I die. That's right. That's right. Um, okay, so we can see that this sound is connected to the, theo- the the theophany or the epiphanic glory of God, those types of things. Uh, now turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, just to kind of draw this or bring this into a new covenant, New Testament context, and ultimately to a Christological. So carried to its Christological end, the theophany glory of God's presence finds its ultimate expression in Jesus Christ and the second advent of the Son, and the culmination of the day of the Lord as it is fulfilled in the antitypical advent of Christ. Antitypical just means the fulfillment. It's fulfilled in Christ. Um, and you have this day of the Lord theology. Um, okay, keep your finger there. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Okay, we'll go there in a second. Let me just, um, because I was studying the day of the Lord language in, in the New Testament. Um, but let me let me give you another possible reference to the day of the Lord. Uh, let me just read it to you. This is Revelation chapter one. This is where I'm going to get a little bit controversial, and I'm just just food for thought. I just uh, I just want you to uh, maybe think about the possibilities. I'm not taking a dogmatic position on this, but this came to me last night. And I thought, you know what? Um, I'm just going to share with the class. Let's see what they think. You know, hopefully I don't get stoned up here. But in in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, I think what we have here possibly is a reference to the day of the Lord. So contrary to the traditional view or the traditional reading of Revelation 1.10, this is what it says. You know this verse. This is John, the seer, the revelator, saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, I, I just 
I want to throw this out there. So what is when it says here the Lord's Day, what's that referring to? Sunday, Sunday right? Any other evidence of that in the New Testament? Okay. Read it for us. <laughs> well, it's possible. Yeah, that's right. There is a construction that is similar to this in 1 Corinthians. But what I'm saying is if you look at this context, it says here, I was, I was in the spirit of the Lord, or excuse, in the spirit on the Lord's day. But then look at the context. I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet. Now, the reason why I'm questioning, is this, is this John saying, I was in the spirit on Sunday? <laughs> or could it be, as some have suggested and grammatically possible, that this is John saying he was in the spirit on the day of the Lord, meaning this eschatological day, this day of judgment? I, I'm just saying it's possible from, from the factor that well, number one, we're obviously in an apocalyptic literature, right? Revelation. Number two, the context is suggesting that there are features of the day of the Lord in this text. The trumpet, the loud voice. And then just look down with me just a little bit further to to the context here where he says uh, in verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. That concept of the voice of the sound of many waters is all attached to the terrible day of the Lord all throughout the prophets. Uh, so anyway, just food for thought. I'm not being dogmatic there. I'm just saying, could it be that what what the author is saying, and I know, especially for us reform folks, we love using the Lord's day to refer to Sunday. And I'm not trying to take that away from us. I'm just, I'm just thinking, have we injected a bit too much, right? Of our, uh, sort of ecclesi, you know, fully formed ecclesiology back into revelation. Could it be that John, the revelator is saying that he was whisked away to the final day, the day of the Lord, the vision of the apocalypse of Jesus. And on that day he was in the spirit. And guess what? Because it was the day of the Lord, he heard trumpets and he heard the voice of God and he heard the, the as the sound of many waters. Ooh, uh, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. There is evidence if you read the if you read the word biblical commentary on the book of Revelation, he gives you uh, just a list of scholars that actually take that interpretation. So there is some, you know. So anyway, just study it out. Get back to me and tell me why I'm so wrong. I, I'm, it's, it's not my view. I'm just saying it's possible. It's possible. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> See what I mean? This is what I'm saying. It was dangerous for me to even mention this. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, so when I look at that, what he's speaking to as far as the context of even writing to the church in Ephesus and Smyrna and so forth is things that are still to happen that they would experience potentially in their lifetime. Uh huh. So it's definitely not necessarily judgment, the final judgment per se of, of Christ's coming. So he's shown these things. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah, of course. And that that doesn't at all affect the meaning. You know what I mean? Like, like, of course, we know he's being given a vision of the end. Right. 
and uh, and that's probably because the traditional interpretation is this is Sunday, you know what I mean? And this is the, he's he's in this, and so it's almost like what they're saying is the most important thing here is that he's in the spirit. A very tricky term in and of itself, right? If I tell you, hey, are you in the spirit? What does that mean to you? You'll probably think of like, well, you mean like the fruit of the spirit? Like, what are you talking about? Right? I, of course I'm in the spirit. I'm a Christian, right? So what does it mean for the, for the revelator to be in the spirit? That's a very interesting phrase in and of itself. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, there, one of the things that Meredith Klein says is that when, when, when the Lord comes in theophany, right, um, he, he wraps himself in the language of creation. It's very interesting here, right? He wraps himself in the language of trumpet, cloud, thunder, lightning, waters, wind. Right, um, the crowning vision of this is, is is you'll see it's it's in it's in Ezekiel chapter one, and it's also in Revelation that he's decked out with the rainbow. Right, you get a vision of Jesus that he's haloed with the rainbow, uh, so that he's engulfed in creation imagery. It's just really remarkable how God condescends and he wraps himself in in the dimensions of this world. In order to express that he's getting ready to, that, that, that the age to come is breaking in. You know, it's just really amazing. So, um, yes ma'am. Um, Yeah, that's right. I know that at least um, when when the when the Old Testament, for example, and various books were written, at least it in part has served a polemic function, because you have uh, Ugaritic ancient Mesopotamian mythology where Baal was robed in similar imagery as you find in the Bible, that he speaks with thunder and. And, and he has a loud voice and, and a trumpet precedes his voice and all of that. You know what I mean? So in one sense, it's like the Bible does in many places. It corrects the pagan mythology, uh, right, of the ancient Near East. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yes, sir. You know, you see a lot of parallels with that in Matthew 24. And I don't know if that's what you were alluding to at the beginning because it says that. Uh, Matthew 24, yeah. That he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet. Yep. And not only that, but the, the parable that follows that goes into heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then it says, for the Son of Man, 
uh, will be just like uh, the son of the, the for the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. This was kind of what John was. Uh, yeah, John, John, yeah. Was, was speaking about yeah, yeah. The days of Noah, right. Um, and, and the many waters of judgment. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. So, That's right. Um, yeah, Matthew tw- Matthew twenty four. I think you're talking about verse thirty and thirty one, right? A little, little, uh, it's, it's, that, that's the same parable. It's part of it. And then right before that is uh, him coming with sending forth the angels with a great trumpet. But it's right there. Right. Okay. Where were we? First Thessalonians? Yeah. Okay, let's, let's go back there real quick because you have kind of a similar language being used there. Um, Second Thessalonians 1. Yeah, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. No, no, no. Did I say 1? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. With the coming of Christ. Okay, I've got two Thessalonian passages. I got mixed up here. Verse 6, for all, uh, it says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Watch this. And the glory of his power, right? When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who, all who have believed if our testimony to you was believed. So there just again, the glory appearance of the Lord, but I want to connect that same day. Now, if you go to First Thessalonians chapter four, right? This is very interesting here. If you go to First Thess four sixteen, and we're going to go, um, we're going to go all the way to chapter five. Look at verse sixteen. For the Lord Himself, watch this, will descend from heaven. It says, uh, uh, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. And with the trumpet of God, and that's why, again, my association of the Lord's day in Revelation, because it is so closely associated with both voice and trumpet, <laughs> right? It's just, to me, it seems like it could be a reference to the day of the Lord, voice, trumpet. Anyway, what he says here is the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Watch this. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, so what, you know, biblical theology tells us this. It's different than grammatical historical theology, right? Grammatical historic, historical will try to decipher what is that cloud? <laughs> is that a literal cloud? Is that a spiritual cloud? Is that a symbolic cloud, right? So grammatical historical hermeneutics are going to try to get to the literal meaning of that word. Redemptive historical hermeneutics, which is biblical theology, which is what we're doing. And all that that means is we trace an idea from Genesis to Revelation and we allow the Bible itself to develop the theology of that idea, right? So by the time we get to this, the Lord in his clouds, right, is obviously a theophanic image. It's, um, it's images of the spirit. It's images of the glory of God. It's images of his glory presence that I think go all the way back to Genesis and the prophets and uh, where he comes in in the Exodus, where he appears in, in, th- in clouds and thick gloom, right? And all of that, 
I think that's all part of it. It says to, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now look at verse 5. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need for anyone uh, uh, for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well, watch this, that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. In Revelation, and you probably have a cross-reference there, in Revelation, Jesus refers to his coming time and again as coming like a thief in the night. So the day of the Lord is like the coming of a thief in the night. In other words, the day of the Lord is fulfilled in what? The second coming. And so what do we have, therefore? If we go, let's go all the way back to Genesis again. What do we have again in Genesis? I believe, and I think people like Meredith Klein, G.K. Beale, and others that see this, I believe that they are right. I believe that what constrains man's fear in paradise is the idea that not only they have disobeyed and they have broken the covenant of works, but that when it says the Lord was walking or, guess what? The term here is can also mean patrolling. This Hebrew word, in fact, is used in the Old Testament of the Lord sending out angels to patrol the earth for surveillance and for judgment. You find evidence of this, for example, in Zechariah chapter 1, where repeatedly, repeatedly, the angels of the Lord are out surveying, patrolling for the purpose of judgment. Right? Same word is used right here of the presence of Yahweh. He is coming to survey, to, to, he is coming to, to, uh, to, to look for the man and the woman for the purposes of judgment. <laughs> right? So that's why they're so afraid. Um, just remarkable. Remember I told you, in protology, there's no throwaway words, right? Every word seems to have some significance. It's really amazing the way that God has constructed these passages. Um, the Lord is walking and then in the garden. And so here's the deal. The phrase is in Ruach. Let's make that a capital R. In, no, no, no let, me, let, me, let me back up a little bit. In the Ruach of the, sorry, Cole, of the day. That's the phrase. So then we have to ask ourselves, okay, um, how do we translate that? Well, if you only have Genesis 1 through 3, it's the second time you're seeing Ruach. And if it does, like some exegetes are now concluding, that it should be a, refer- a reference either to the wind of God or to the Spirit of God, right? Then what is it saying? They heard the sound of the Lord uh, uh, coming or patrolling the garden in the spirit of the day. So then the next question remains, what day? What day? Is it talking about? So the translation would be in the day of. uh, I always do that. You guys do that. You put an E after. Anyway. (laughs) 
They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the spirit of the day of judgment is sort of the imagery that Genesis is now giving us. And so um, I think this makes a lot more sense because the people are hiding themselves from this day. If it was just a, a, a leisurely stroll through a cool part of the garden, uh, there's no reason to hide. But they hide themselves from the presence. And then, and then look at that. So, so what we're saying is that this is a theophanic episode, right? This is, right, theophany, right? And it is epiphany. It is a manifestation of God's glory and it instills fear in the people. You see that? And what is it, um, what is it uh, synonymous with? One second. What is it synonymous with in the text? The walking of God in the garden in the cool of the day or in the spirit of the day of judgment. And then what are they hiding themselves from? What's the word they're hiding themselves from? Huh? presence yeah the panim of god the presence of god so what is this approach of yahweh in the garden what is this revealing it is his glorious presence coming to judge his people and this evidence you find all over the scripture all over the place where the presence of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord is connected to uh, the concept of judgment. Uh, think of, uh, you know, the spirits, uh, the spirits role in judgment is all over the Old Testament. Now think of it Christologically, Isaiah 42, the spirit of God will be on the Messiah for what? To execute justice, it says. Right. And there are literally hundreds of texts that show the spirit and judgment go together. Right. So any questions? I'm sorry, Mike. Yeah. Sorry, I had to preach that. I, I just. Oh, they definitely fear God. Definitely fear God. Yeah. 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 Well, right there, it says they're fearing his presence. Uh, it can't be any more powerful than that. You know what I mean? It's it's the, it is the very presence of God that that instills fear. Yeah, that's right. And so what, like Meredith Klein is saying, is when you get to the Exodus and they're at Mount Sinai, guess what is fearful in their eyes again? It is the terrible presence of God, right? What does it say in Hebrews chapter 12? It says they asked no more, no more of the presence of God. It was so fearful. They asked that no further word would even be spoken to them. It was so terrifying. The thunderclap and the lightning flash and the thick gloom and darkness. Anyway, I'm trying to scare you guys. But you have propitiation, so you don't have to be afraid. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, he'll... Well, think about Revelation. Well, of course, uh, Romans chapter 3, it says they have no fear of God in their eyes. But that doesn't mean they will not become afraid of God in the day of judgment, right? They will all, yeah... Yeah, that's right. They'll sit, remember Mike, they'll say, rocks fall on us. They're so afraid. Yeah, they're gonna try to go down some nuclear bunker somewhere to hide from God's presence. Right? Think of the elites of the world trying to hide from Jesus Christ in some nuclear bunker somewhere. You know what I mean? That they think they're preparing for the new world order. No, I'm just joking. 
get all conspiratorial on you guys. My uh, Keith, you had something. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read Exodus real, real quick. Please. It says, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet, which Jesus talked about. Mm-hmm. So that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp unto God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Zion was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. So the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently, and the sound of the Yeah, yeah, that's right. Landon? I would say just for extra reading, Isaiah 63 is a passage you want to write down because it deals with the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and mm-hmm. the Spirit of God in the midst, and the, and the, act, the activity of the Spirit in the midst yeah. of them judging and, 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 uh, and, and is that work there. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, sir. Also, Last one. Yeah, 2 Samuel 6, when David and they were carrying in the ark of God, and God struck Uzzah dead just for his pure reverence. Just right. the ark represented God's right. presence. And so the right. fact that Uzzah went to reach for it after the ox stumbled, and God struck him dead on the spot, just also shows that the Bible says David feared God that day. That's right. That's right. Because he saw the glory theophany of God. He saw his presence. He saw a manifestation of God in his, in his wrath, right? And in all of his glory. That's right. And so what, final word. So when you're in the prophets, folks, from here on out, when you're studying Joel, Zechariah chapter one, Isaiah 27, when you're looking at all the Isaiah chapter six, and you're looking at all these glory theophanies of God, right? Ask yourself, where did it all begin? And I think where it begins is in the first parousia, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. That is the first day of the Lord where God comes in glory and power and terrible sound and fright and judgment, right, upon a covenant-breaking people. Um, But praise God for the gospel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? (laughs) That he will save us by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, the seed of the woman and... uh, uh, We'll we'll get them. I'm so woefully out of. I'm so much. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. It's it's late. Let's go. Let's go to worship.